I would like to welcome everyone to the LNG panel, uh, the LNG sector panel. We have with us uh, another terrific uh, group of panelists. I would like to thank uh, Radhi Givens from Jefferies for moderating this panel, and I would like to welcome uh, Tony Larison from Dynagas, Ian Ross from Golar, Oystein Kalekler from Flex LNG, and Paul Wogan from Gaslog and Gaslog Partners. Great um, group of panelists, and uh, Randy, the floor is yours. Again, thank you to everybody for uh, joining us uh, for the forum and for this panel. Great. Well, hey, yeah, thank you, Nicholas. As uh, Nicholas mentioned, my name is Randy Givens, head of the Energy Maritime Shipping Equity Research Team here at Jefferies. So obviously, Nicholas already gave the introduction to our, our star-studded panel here of the top executives in one of the most exciting industries in the world, LNG shipping. So we'll start the panel with a little bit of background information, discuss some of the industry drivers, uh, and then look at each of the company's strategy, and then have a little bit of lightning round at the end for some hot topics. So before we, I guess, discuss the outlook for LNG carriers, I think it'd be somewhat beneficial to talk about where the industry has been over this crazy last year, right? Obviously, rates fell to terrible levels uh, in the summer, and then have roared to record highs here just as a month or two months ago, as LNG spot prices also reached record highs. So starting with Paul, uh, if you can kick it off, what were some of those specific reasons that maybe caused the rate collapse this summer and then caused the incredible rate rally uh, that we saw this winter? And I'll show, uh, I'll show some of the rate levels here. But Paul, start us off here. What happened with rates? Yeah, thank you, Randy. Well, <clears throat> I think what was interesting, you know, we've just been through the year of COVID, and uh, if you look at LNG demand, it was actually up slightly, only 1%, probably, you know, 4 or 5% below where we expected it to be, but, you know, proved incredibly resilient uh, when you compare that to crude oil, where we saw, you know, 10% demand destruction. So I don't think it was surprising uh, that you, you know, given the new capacity coming on, we saw some shut-ins in the US Gulf. So if you look at this year, you have you know, a fairly good start to the year, then you have a low point and you have about 120 shut-ins in the US and you have uh, rates uh, for, for carriers falling. What's interesting is if you look at how many spot cargoes were fixed this year, spot and short term, that was up around 50% on 2019. So still a lot of volume was being moved. And actually the market was much tighter than people realized at that time. And we were talk, just chatting just before uh, this, uh, we, we went live and Tony made a very good point. You know, what happened? We had a cold winter. Hey, guess what? Winters are normally cold and that's all it took to show where the real tightness was in the market. And we had a cold winter in Asia, cold winter in Europe, and you saw the rates uh, going up. So my personal view is that this LNG shipping market is much tighter market than people are realizing. You don't need much to move it. So uh, that for me is the story of the year. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And then, you know, obviously since the record high in mid-January, rates have pulled back, right? They're back down to 40,000, if not slightly below. So that brings me to kind of three important questions. So first to Ian, uh, what has or maybe has not right, happened in recent weeks resulting in the collapse of rates? Is it inventory levels? Is it purely based on weather, LNG prices? Can it shed some light on what's happened here in the last six weeks? Thanks, Randy. Well, what has happened is, is really the normal post-winter market drop. 
a seasonal trend where uh, backwardation of LNG prices drives the charterers to discharge their cargoes as soon as possible. And the, the extreme demand for cargoes this winter, as Tony, uh, sorry, as Paul just alluded to, took all possible divertible shipping away from the Atlantic, which is now discharging and coming open in Asia. So what has not happened, I suppose, is the maintenance of balance of ships in the Atlantic and Pacific basins. And, you know, it's become more imbalanced than usual. And I uh, heard today that um, Porton are reporting 15 to 20 ships currently idle, promptly available in the Pacific. Wow. Okay. And then over to Tony, is, is the LNG shipping market perpetually going to be tied to the underlying price of LNG? Obviously, when you saw the, the very high JKM in Northwest European prices in January, you saw very high shipping rates with that ARB. So is that just going to be a perpetual link there between LNG shipping rates and prices? And then where do you expect rates to go from here and, and into this summer? Thank you, Randy. I think that's a good question. Um, Look, it's a difficult one. Um, um, I think that uh, there will always be a link between LNG prices and shipping rates. Um, you know, shipping rates is a fundamental, you know, cost, uh, uh, you know, part of uh, of uh, ex-ship LNG. So, you know, if shipping rates are up, that will affect pricing. Um, um, you know, uh, what is difficult to say is, is sometimes is it is it uh, the pricing that is driving shipping rates or vice versa. And, and that is up for discussion, uh, you know, in the future. But definitely, I think that uh, there will always be um, a link there. But I think that, um, um, you know, LNG shipping compared to, you know, crude oil product or dry, um, uh, you know, carriers is somewhat um, um, underdeveloped. Um, because, you know, what we tend to look at, um, uh, I mean, you, men uh, I mean you, you mentioned now the... Um, the arbitrage between the, the JKM and European prices, and we look a lot at that. Um, but if the LNG shop, uh, if the LNG shipping market was was more efficient, you wouldn't probably have those, you know, those arbit, uh, arbitrage uh, arbitrage opportunities lasting for for months. Um, so um, I think that that signals that there is work to do on the infrastructure side. I think that when there will be more global production, Middle East producing more, for example, I think that. Um, um, these arbitrage opportunities will not be as long, uh, long lasting uh, as they are today. Um, they, they will be present from, you know, from time to time, but it will be a slightly different way of thinking about it. Um, and uh, where do we go uh, you know, from here into the summer? Uh, uh, you know, to be honest, I mean, we came from a fantastic market uh, into a pretty dull one. Um, I think um, it's gonna be weak um, uh, you know, into the summer. But thereafter, me personally, I'm pretty optimistic. I, th um, as we pointed out earlier, um, you know, the 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 main reason for this historic highs that we saw was that it got cold. Why shouldn't it be cold? Uh, uh, you know, the next season. And I think on top of that, um, um, you know, in particular, you know, it got cold in the Far East. Um, the Far East is an interesting market because um, it's the biggest market combined in the world. Uh, it has a lot of pull on vessels. Um, and I think uh, this, uh, this upcoming winter will be a special one because it will be the Olympics uh, in China, in Beijing. Um, it will be uh, important that there is a clean environment there. I think we'll see the standing down of coal burning and upping gas uh, um, and also making sure that in, uh, inventories are ready to keep uh, you know, everyone warm. So I'm pretty optimistic uh, beyond the summer. Okay. And over to Oystein um, or Einstein, as you like to be called. 
Um, how can the industry kind of uh, reduce uh, or, or even offset, you know, some of this intense volatility in rates? We see seasonality in all the shipping sectors, right? But LNG is by far the most extreme. Uh, and also our variable rate charters, something we started to see here in recent quarters, going to fully replace the one to two year fixed rate time charters going forward? I'm not sure if it's the most volatile shipping segment. Of course, 2020 it was very volatile where rates went down to less than 20 and then to 350. So let's say 20 times <coughs> change in the, the freight rate level. But that also, in, you know, there, there was also a 20 times change in the price of the product. So, so JKM going from 1.8 to closer to $40. So, so it really reflected our very special situation uh, last year. So usually you don't have as such volatile market, but you know, there, there is a general volatility. There is also seasonality. And of course, as, as, as Tony mentioned, it's not that developed as a spot market. Uh, Paul also mentioned, in fact, you know, you have 50% more spot transaction in 2020 than 2019 that illustrate that it's a, a pretty new segment in terms of spot market. And then storage levels, you know, if you look at oil and other kind of commodities, storage level of that commodity tend to be much more developed than what is the case uh, for LNG. And LNG, you have pretty good gas inventory levels in US and Europe, but that's pretty much it. So. So how can you cope with uh, volatility? I think you know the easiest answer is just to do long-term charters, and and then this is somebody else's problem. Um, how we have done it in Flex, uh, you know, given the fact we haven't seen good enough value in in doing longer-term contracts, it's been a mix of of different things. We have done some a slightly longer contracts, some some fixed uh, term charters, typically like twelve months some in variable higher contracts as you mentioned both 12 months but all even one being as long as five years minimum so and, and that's kind of reduced all volatility and then also when you have a pretty firm market you try to build some extra period in those markets while you you kind of just bite the bullet and do short when the market is soft so if you look at the volatility of our time charter equivalent earnings it's pretty you know, stable throughout the year. In 2020, we started off at 67,000 in Q1, and then Q2, Q3, which was, you know, <laughs> terrible year, terrible times in, in the spot market. We averaged 47,000 both those quarters, and our, spot, you know, cashback even is like 45. So, but mm. when we are at 45 with these kind of new ships, the steamships are losing money. Yeah, so, and then as the market uh, improved, we, we went to 74,000 in, in Q4. So it's not that volatile in terms of our, our trading results. And then, of course, we have guided higher in Q1 this year, where we said revenues will grow from 67 million to somewhere around 80, 90 million Q1. So, so that should push up the, the trading results for Q1. And then they will go down again in, in uh, Q2, because now the market is soft. It's week nine. If you look at the 10-year historical average, the bottom of the market is in week 11. So we are now kind of all those ships that Ian mentioned, which are around in the market now, a lot ended up in Asia. Somebody has to, to, to bite the bullet and go back to Atlantic. Sure. So they are willing to do that pretty cheap because you need to rebalance the market. Now you have had a huge pull to Asia. So now you will need to pull a lot of cargoes from US into Europe, where the inventories levels is down to 36%. So while at the same time, 
last year we were at 60%. So this gap, this gap is 17 million tons. That's more than the cargoes being canceled in the US for the whole of 2019. So there's a lot of these cargoes that need to be going into Europe. That will drag the shipping demand into Atlantic. And if you have a shipping shipping in the Pacific, then that ship has to move into Atlantic. And there's not really cargoes going from Pacific to Atlantic. Sure. All right. And then moving away from more seasonality factors, right? Just looking at some of the long-term demand drivers. Clearly rate volatility this year has primarily been caused by volatility and demand. So a few questions around demand, right? After many years of numerous large LNG liquefaction FIDs from 2012 to let's call it 2018, there's been a relative lack in recent years other than the, the cutter expansion. So Paul, what do you make of this lack of maybe the large LNG liquefaction FIDs recently? And how will this affect the LNG shipping markets uh, going forward? I know in your yeah, presentation- and, and, you and had I just mentioned, since you called me Einstein, you know, don't forget 2019. That was the best market in FID ever. You had more than 70 million tons in 2019. Yep. So looking <laughs> at 2020 and then to today. So Paul, can you uh, touch on that? Here's your chart yeah, I showing mean, some of the, the new LNG liquefaction. Well, I remember that one well from our earnings call. So thank you for, uh, for that, uh, Randy. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I think what's happened again, going back to 2020, year of COVID, um, and there was a, a, a general view that the LNG market was oversupplied. The demand held up, I think, better than most people thought, but still people put off FIDs. And I think it's pushed back FIDs 18 to 24 months, to be honest with you. But what's happening is you're seeing the LNG commodity market uh, balance much more quickly than people thought. You know, this, this winter made people realize, actually, we thought that maybe the market for the commodity balances in 23, maybe 24, actually we're pulling that right forward to 21, 22. So I think there's a real um, drive now for people saying, actually, this market's gonna balance and potentially be shorter much quicker, much more quickly than we thought. But still, there's gonna be a hiatus of new projects coming on because we've had this sort of, you know, 12, 18, 24 months where we haven't seen a lot of uh, new capacity additions. You know, we still, we have got the new um, Arctic um, project coming on. Hopefully Mozambique comes on, but of course there is some political uh, issues there with terrorism, et cetera. Um, and then the Qatar is coming on. But I think that's pushed back into in 24, 25, 26 type of uh, time frame. So I think what we have to do as ship owners is not rush out and build ahead of that, which is what we normally do, let's face it, and actually wait until those new pr productions coming on and have the ships ready for that point rather than one year, two years earlier and be, and be flooding the market. But, you know, I think in the longer term, uh, we continue to be uh, bullish uh, on new liquefaction production uh, coming on. Okay. And then Ian, I'd like to get your comments, you know, obviously on FLNG with Golar being so active in, in that industry, as well as some comments on the other side of the LNG shipping market, the regasification capacity. You know, there's some new regas capacity additions set to start in the coming years, but will it be enough to soak up the new LNG supply? And also where do FSRUs fit in the equation? So here's some of the regas growth. Okay, Randy, thanks. So let, quite a bit in there. Let me re address regas and FSIUs first. So I, I think there's ample overall regasification capacity to soak up all the supply. 
The amount of regas capacity under construction in 2020 reached a 10-year high with around 144 million tonnes per annum being built, which is dominated by uh, China and India. And this includes 33 terminals under construction, totaling just sort of around 90 million tonnes and a further 50 or so um, tonnes per annum that could be added to existing terminals. However, on the demand side, it's going to depend on the choice of energy mix, which will be impacted by a number of factors such as price, politics and weather. And, you know, price is often dominant out of those three. The positive trend for LNG carriers, though, is that the distance between the new production, largely in the US, and in incremental demand uh, in China, that, that link is increasing, and we're seeing additional uh, and new markets opening uh, on top of that. And that major energy importing countries, such as South Korea, are opting to transition more power generation to gas away from uh, coal, perhaps, requiring more LNG imports. So FSRUs, they'll continue to be the fast track and lower cost entry for new locations that want to become LNG importers. If, if, um, you know, if we think about the best way to solve the supply de demand dynamics in favor of the LNG industry is to create that additional demand, whether that's from LNG fuel bunkering, trucking, decentralized power generation and support of renewables. If you create that demand, the supply and logistics have to follow. If I then turn to FLNG, I really think that FLNG is starting to come of age. And Gola, we think that LNG can be produced for around $3 per MMBTU FOB, West Coast Africa, using one of obviously our floating vessels. And with the spread between LNG produced off West Africa and the forward LNG curves, with that spread approaching $3, we're back in a buoyant upstream market. And our unique and innovative floating LNG solutions can monetize on a cost schedule and carbon competitive basis. These stranded assets, uh, stranded gas assets, associated gas and reinjected gas, and really turning what's essentially a waste product into a fuel that can displace these more polluting and higher carbon content fuels, which is coal, HFO and, um, and diesel. I mean, LNG is a, a really firm and fundamental place in the energy transition. But with these FIDs that we've talked about, you've got to be able to move quickly to, to capture the opportunities. And that's in an industry known for taking a long time to make decisions. Sure. And Tony, if you could add on to some of that with LNG being a, a transition fuel, right? Do you agree with that term? And how long do you view LNG as a kind of a long-term fuel option? And then how will demand for LNG as a bunker fuel for the other shipping sectors? We've seen it for VLCCs. We've seen some large container ships going dual fuel. How will that impact the overall LNG market? Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> well, um, if I agree with the term, uh, the transition fuel, uh, to be honest, I think it's a strange one because it immediately asks the question that you, you, you go into what, what's the next step? Um, so of course, I think what most people think about is renewables. Uh, but when you, when you think about an energy you know, source, of course, emissions is important, but scalability, um, uh, you know, regular supply, reliability, you know, is, is, is extremely uh, important too. So um, I think what's becoming clearer and clearer to us here in Dynagas is that we're not talking about 
you know, gas or renewables or hydrogen. We're talking about it as, um, you know, complementary. Um, so for example, the, you know, renewables as, you know, such as um, electricity produced by, you know, wind and, wind and sun is great when there is wind and sun. For the other times you need something else. Now, um, you know, a modern, you know, uh, you know, a modern, uh, uh, you know, gas powered power plant, you know, has the benefit, you know, has the benefit of being, you know, very reactive. Um, just like your barbecue in a way, um, you know, you go, you know, you switch it on, it's up and running. I think, you know, the most uh, modern uh, power plants are up, you know, supplying the electric grid within two minutes from you start the button. Um, and that's what you need really to complement to the renewables. You need, uh, you know, a reliable, scalable source uh, that is there when you don't have the cleaner, um, uh, you know, alternatives. So um, um, I don't really think about it as a transition fuel at all. Um, I think about um, um, a complement uh, to the renewables. Um, and of course, one thing is what, what the targets are for you know, 2050 and so on. Another thing is what is actually doable. Um, so um, it's great to put targets, but it's also good to have technology that will allow us to get there. Um, and for your second part of the question, um, I mean, how do we think that um, the marine um, uh, you know, sector uh, and the use of, of uh, you know, uh, and the application of uh, LNG in that sector will, uh, um, you know, affect the, um, uh, you know, or impact the overall energy demand for that. Um, to be honest, not very much uh, in the beginning. Um, I think it's a very interesting sector. Um, I think, I mean, there are 90,000 carriers in the world if they all switch to LNG propulsion tomorrow, obviously that will be fantastic, but it will take time. I think it will take decades until we get there. And then the question is, why would you have a vessel uh, transporting crude oil running on LNG? Um, I mean, th there is a paradox there. Or if we take it even further, why would you have a coal, you know, a, a coal carrier um, you know, uh, running on LNG? So, you know, since, you know, since, um, you know, global, um, you know, since uh, greenhouse gases, uh, you know, coming from uh, shipping is around 2% uh, or so, of course, there are other more important, um, uh, you know, emitting sources to, you know, to, to deal with. Uh, but I think that um, the, uh, the most imminent um, uh, demand for or demand growth for uh, LNG is for power generation and for industrial use and, and, uh, and, uh, and commercial use. Sure. All right, now switching gears to LNG supply, right, and, and shipping supply, starting with your respective fleets, obviously the LNG shipping technology seems to improve pretty much every year with now a trifurcated market currently. So Oystein, as Flex has the newest LNG fleet in the world, all of which are the large 174,000 cubic meter vessels, how much of an advantage does this give you and are your TCE rates and utilization that much higher than your peers because of these new large carriers? Of course, we had the 60,000 on our fleet last year in TCE, so of course you can compare that and you can find the, find the answer yourself. But I think it's more it's more related. Of course, it's a bigger, more efficient ship, so the kind of the fuel consumption compared to our steam is like 60% less. And then that's kind of a commercial impact, of course, for how much you can pay for the, the freight. And also it's becoming more an environmental issue as well. And especially when it comes now to the new 
regulation, um, which we do expect to come in place by 2023, which is the EEXI, energy efficiency for existing ships. So, you know, usually we have had rules for fuel efficiency for new ships, but now we're going to have that for also for existing ships. So those ships need to meet certain criteria. And in 2008, that's the baseline by 2013, down by 40%, down by 70 by 2050. So in 2008, all the ships were steamships. And they those to get those carbon emissions down <laughs> to, to 2030 by 40% is not very easy because those ships are pretty slow. And you have a boil off, you have to manage that boil off. So I think you know it's it's having advanced ships means that you know a lot of these older ships coming off contract, people would like to to have newer ships to replace those, and then having new ships will put you in a position to also build some backlog. And, and uh, so you have, you know, if you look at the kind of the scale of the ships, you have the steamships and the tri-fuel and Q-maxes and, and the hybrid ships. So you are, have the most efficient ships. And I think that will put you in a position to build backlog and, and take down some of the volatility in your earnings. And, and really, you know, all kind of ships, they are too nice and efficient to be in the, the spot market. And it really more belongs to less, less efficient ships, especially, you know, when you're talking about short -term. So okay. I think that's that's the main benefit uh, of, of having having the newer ships. And then Paul, you know, Gaslog Partners, they operate some TFDE ships as well as some older steam ships. Will there be a market for these smaller, uh, as Oystein said, less efficient ships uh, in the years ahead, or will all the steam ships get scrapped or repurposed in the next three to five years? Well, it's going to be a really interesting market if we get rid of 234 ships out of a fleet of 521. We, you know, we have a small number of steamships. If, if, if that's what happens, we're going to make so much money on the rest of our ships that we're really not <laughs> going to care about it, I can promise you. So, but joking aside, that, that is the issue right now. You have you know, 234 steamships, you have 190 of TFDE vessels. You know, to, to replace those is a huge amount of investment. And my question is, who's going to go out and make that investment, given the fact that what's the lifespan of the next generation of LNG ships? If you go out today and you order a ship for 2025, by 2050, it has to meet criteria, which a ship today doesn't. So you now have to write off the new ships in 25 years, not 30 years, not 35 years. So who's going to go out and place those orders for those, those new ships right now? So it's, I think it's really interesting. I don't think you can you know, get rid of the steamships uh, in, you know, in the space of time that people are suggesting. If okay. you do, the market will go crazy. But on the other side, you will actually just put a spanner in the works of the whole LNG commodity market because the, the LNG won't be able to move around the world. So I think there's going to be compromises there. I think where Oyston's correct, you know, for the long haul, for the for the um, you know um, major cargoes, the new ships are great. We put three of our ships um, on two to three year charters recently, our steamships, for niche business where they're doing some storage, some movement, you know, being part, you know, getting more into the logistics into uh, smaller ports. So there's still a niche market for those vessels, um, you know, and I think that niche market stays for a while, but certainly. You know, I think over time, you know, there is going to be replacement of ships, but that's going to take quite a long time. Got it. Well, yeah, let's turn to the order book, right? So 
obviously in 2015, it kind of peaked right at two at four, about 40% here uh, using my meteorologist. Um, and then obviously it's trended lower, but it's still at around 25% currently. So on the order book, Ian, how is that going to affect, you know, day rates utilization for the current ships on order? Is the market going to be able to soak up 25% um, of the order book to fleet ratio over the next three to four years without extensive scrapping on the older, smaller ships? Yeah, uh, it's, it's, that's the question, isn't it? And I, I think I agree with a lot of Hoyston and, and Paul's comments prior. But bear in mind, we, we saw only something in the order of 30 new orders through 2020, and, and much of that's committed to contract. I think uh, Mozambique in the Arctic was mentioned. I think Shell picked up uh, some for replacements. But the, you know, the industry is just going through this interesting phase where the steamers are being slowly phased out for these new technology ships. But there's, you know, this large order book, as you say, is going to have some potentially some repercussions on market sentiment and expectations in the near term. Right. But if you consider this in isolation, um, it doesn't look great, but it's also too simplistic a way to think of things. Because over the next five years, so take a five-year time horizon, that these uh, new builds that are on order, so 140 or so of them coming on order, around 75 of the steamers are coming off long-term contract, many of which we expect to be retired. Obviously, not all of them. Some of them may be repurposed. Some of them, I agree, will go into that niche business environment that Paul talked about. Um, and certainly, some of the activities that, that Gola Power, Hygo, now New Fortress Energy will be doing uh, around creating these new markets it's perhaps more suited to some of these smaller parcel size and, and uh, one-off rather than long-term uh, America to China sort of uh, carriages. But um, that over that period, there's another 70 million tons of new production will come on. And that's gonna have a significant impact on both ton miles and therefore shipping demand. So, you know, it's a balance, and I, I, I agree that we have to wait and see, but I don't think all of the steam turbines will be retired, but obviously some of them will, and that will put upward pressure on the medium-term fleet. So not, not the next couple of years, but certainly that medium-term to, to that we've talked about. Perfect. All right, well, we have about 10 minutes left. So uh, for some of the investors on the line, I want to ask each of you kind of one company-specific question, maybe take about one minute each to answer and then we'll go to the lightning round. So first to Tony, you know, do you still view delevering your balance sheet as the top priority at this point, uh, kind of in the cycle? What are your thoughts on maybe reinstituting a distribution and or acquiring another dropdown from your parent here in 2021? Yeah, thank you very much. Um, look, uh, the delever of our, uh, of our balance sheet is still the top priority. Um, um, it is what we've been communicating for the last uh, uh, year or so and what we are communicating uh, now. But I do think that, uh, you know, in the, in the not too distant future, we can look at uh, um, acquiring more uh, vessels or, uh, uh, you know, either uh, existing, um, uh, you know, from the, from the parent or from the market or new build. Uh, but uh, we, are, we are definitely starting to look at uh, new projects uh, in the... Uh, yeah, into the future, uh, but uh, right now, uh, the, the, the lowering of the debt is still the top priority. Perfect. Uh, Oystein, you've been very active in deploying capital via new building acquisitions, increasing your dividend, repurchasing shares. Uh, as of just a few days ago, I saw another announcement on that. So do you think this kind of balanced capital allocation approach is best? 
And what are your views of consolidation, knowing that there are certainly sellers of TFD carriers in the market, or are you only wanting your, your Meggy ships and XDF vessels? In terms of capital allocation, we have said once we get all the ships on, on the water and, and all our kind of equity is starting to generate income, we wanted to in case of dividends. So we made 45 cents in Q4 and we paid out 30 cents uh, in case the dividend from 10 to 30 cents. But then we're also buying back a lot of stocks because that's the best investment we can do. So if we want to do consolidation, we probably do consolidation of our own stock. So if you buy our stock, we buy our ship at 160 million. These are brand new ships. We only we have even one more left for delivery. Uh, and they're all financed with long-term attractive debt. And you get the software with them as well. So I think uh, for us, the, our, our focus on our ships, buying back our stock, returning capital, certainly not deleveraging. We have put in place a lot of you know, attractive debt. So we, we don't see any reason why we should pay back that prematurely uh, and and cash balance is is sound with around 130 million dollars at year and then we will add more money to that cash balance through through q1 with our bookings so. okay uh, over to paul i know you're unable to say anything regarding uh, the blackrock merger with glog so focusing on your ceo of glop hat right following the strategic review is the partnership structure with glop likely to stay for a while or is that continue to be evaluated periodically and what were maybe some of the other second third place options uh are asset sales on the table for gas log partners yeah so thanks Ravdi. yeah for, for gas log partners i mean we did a strategic review um and we decided actually we like the fact of being a independent company we think there's a very good future for it just go back to a point hoisting made earlier which was you know, at certain levels, this is this market is loss making for steam vessels. Of course, what's more, the most important thing is how much debt have you got on your ships? If you've got very little debt on your ships, your break evens go down. And so, a little bit like Tony, our view is we are going to drop take our leverage down in Gaslock Partners um, as uh, as fast as we can and bring down the break evens of the vessels. We think that the growth that we saw this year in the spot market will continue. We think that the LNG market will continue to commoditize. There will still be a lot of long-term business, but there will be more and uh, more cargoes move, more liquidity in the short-term market. And we feel with the size of fleet that we have uh, in Gaslock Partners that we can be a major player in that uh, spot market. And we see with the timing of the LNG commodity, a very interesting market coming over the next few years and a good opportunity, I think, uh, for investors in that, into, who want to get into that uh, spot market. So for us, we you know, see the, the future very much as an independent standalone company. And we see the future very much like Tony's company. Let's bring down the leverage, let's get the break-evens down and we can be very competitive and very, I think, agile and nimble uh, in that spot market. Sure. And then to Ian, obviously in recent quarters, you've gone from maybe looking to divest your shipping business to it now being a, a major portion of your business following the sale of Golar Power or HIGO uh, to NFE. So as such, how do you view this core LNG shipping business longer term? Are you more likely to sell or spin off the business or are you now looking to grow and acquire some additional tonnage? Thanks, Randy. It's a, it's a good question. Um, I, I would say that Golar's remaining business now has two arms to it, if you like, or, or three, if you consider our, or you include our in, uh, investment in New Fortress, which at 9% is not inconsiderate sure. in the downstream. 
But essentially, we've got shipping and FLNG. And what we've learned over the last few years is that from an investor point of view, they don't necessarily sit well together. We have people that really want to invest in, in, uh, in the shipping market, um, but they don't like the long-term um, high capital intensity of FLNG. And equally on the other side, the FLNG investment community really enjoys the high EBITDA generation over very long periods of time, but they don't necessarily want exposure to the, to the shipping market. So with the NFE deals, it's given our balance sheet um, a lot of, of support. Um, I think that the crystallization of value that we've, we've been able to demonstrate through those deals gives us flexibility. And it's a case of pushing to, um, I suppose, figure out a longer term strategy for shipping either inside or outside of the company. And the same with FLNG in terms of uh, accelerating growth there through the initiatives that we've uh, described recently and seeing if there's a, an appetite for investment. So what we can say is we will work towards further group simplification, which will inevitably lead to the separation of the two, but we don't know which business is going where. But what we do know, these will make these businesses attractive for their individual and unique investment communities. Sure. Great. Well, hey, thank you all so much for answering those questions. Um, we have about three to four minutes left, so it is now time for the lightning round. So keeping your answers very short, we're going to go to each of you. First question, what is your expectation for LNG carrier ton mile demand growth in percentage terms in 2021? Tony, we'll start with you. Up 10%. Whoa, Oystein. I think 12 and a half. Okay, let's just go. Paul, go for it. Give me 20. Well, actually, I was going to, no, no, I won't go higher. I think you're going to see uh, demand for the product up around about 4% coming out of the US long haul. I think we're going to see something like 8% uh, ton mile demand growth next year, this year. Ian? Well, it was 6% last year, so I'm going 8.5. 8 to 12. <laughs> All right, 8 to 12. I like it. Uh, on the supply side, starting again with Tony, expectation for LNG carrier fleet growth in percentage terms this year. You mean new new orders or you mean uh, uh, just net no, fleet growth, deliveries net of scrapping? So yeah, net fleet All right. growth. All right, 20, 20 ships delivered. So what is that? 20 over six percent. Okay. Oystein. It's uh, 54 ships for delivery. I don't think there will be a lot of scrapping, but say that, let's say there will be a couple of so then we grow 52, maybe, uh, maybe 50, and that's you know, the fleet is like 550 ships, but uh, they are slightly bigger. So then we are 13%. 30, okay. Paul? 10%. Ian? 43 new ships. Okay. 8%. Um, oh, net, net new ships. <laughs> All right. Uh, using those numbers, what's your average TFDE day rate going to fall to this summer? What's the low? and what's going to be the high in December. We'll go the inverse order. Ian, trough in the summer and peak in December. A high 153 and a half and a, and a low of, uh, I'm going to say 30. But we're almost there now, so that's wrong right, already. Right. Paul? I'm going to say, uh, I think Ian said 153 and a half, 154, because I think just go above him. And uh, I think we're probably somewhere near the low now in the, in the 30s. Low. Wow, okay. Oystein, I know you don't have any TFDEs, so don't say zero. 
Um, oh, but uh, of course, I don't think we will be at the bottom in the summer either. I think we will be in the bottom around now. Uh, mm -hmm. And then headline rates are probably 20,000. Uh, by October, November, I think they will be, uh, let's say I say 152 then. <laughs> Everybody in the 150s. Paul, uh, Tony, are you going to join them? Yeah, sure. Um, look, for the lows, I'm not so pessimistic. I think also that we are at the low now. I think summer will move up a little bit. So I said, okay, $30,000 a day low. Um, and for high in November, look, I, I'm going to go for 200. Wow. Hey. All right. First time well, I've been the most bearish guy. <laughs> well, there you go. If, if now is the low. We should low, ask Maggie's oyster. <laughs> If now is the low and the summer's going to be better and the, the, the fall, winter's going to be that much better, sounds like now's the time to buy. So thank you again. Really appreciate it. We covered a lot there in 40 minutes. Um, Nicholas, thanks again for having us. Well, thank you very much for me to all of you. Great panel as always. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you very thanks, much. Thanks, fellas. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks, Nicholas.